Out of the Fourth Place, Chapter 10, Church is an All-Play. More than a decade ago, Communitas planted Upper Room Church in Glasgow, Scotland. Upper Room is a community of about 45 Iranian immigrants. They gather in a large apartment around a community meal, speaking in their negative language, Farsi. Everything about the Upper Room Church is what my friend Dudley calls an all-play. The whole night is full of active community participation. Anyone can take part in the meal preparation. The cooking begins in the early afternoon and culminates in an elaborate meal lasting well into the evening. Teaching is also an all-play. Since it is less about the didactic sermonizing and more about the facilitation of dialogue, then they sing. This time it is a literal all-play where anyone can bring an instrument and play along. Next, they pray. Not just the pastor, but the whole community. They hang out, enjoy some more food, and around 10 p.m., most of them head home. Many people have come to faith in Christ through the Upper Room Church. The story heard over and over again goes something like this. I thought I knew what Christianity was from a distance, but I didn't consider following Jesus until I saw it lived out in the home. As more people came to faith, more of them started to participate in the community. As more participated, the Communitas Church planters slowly handed over leadership to the Iranians. And then something unexpected happened. One of the Communitas church planters was walking through the apartment complex and bumped into an Iranian he didn't recognize. They greeted each other and began a conversation in which the Iranian man mentioned that he was part of a Wednesday night upper room church. The church planter was disoriented because they met on Fridays, not Wednesdays. No, you must be confused. We meet on Fridays. And why don't I recognize you? I'm there every week. It turned out that one of the Iranian leaders, who had been part of the Friday gathering, started a Wednesday evening gathering for those who couldn't make Friday nights. On his own, he started up a church gathering, a meal, dialogue about Jesus, singing, prayer, and now more Iranian immigrants have come to Christ through this new expression on Wednesday nights. It was a new gathering, and the original church planters didn't even know about it. This story raises some interesting questions. Some of you may be thinking, whoa, that sounds a little out of control. We don't want people just starting up churches whenever they want to. How do we know what they are teaching? We'll get to that question later. For now, I want to focus on a different question. What was it about this Friday night all-play church that made an Iranian immigrant be able to say, yes, I could start up another gathering like that. Yes, I feel qualified. And what makes so many of us in the West think that we are unqualified to pastor a church? When I was a small groups pastor at a church of 7,000 people, we went through a senior pastor transition. After a year of intense searching, interviews, and listening to literally hundreds of sermons, the search team still had no qualified leads. How can a year of searching for a pastor yield no qualified leads? Yet an Iranian immigrant who had just come to Christ is able to launch a new church on his own. Acts 4.13 says, When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. When did church leadership shift from unschooled, ordinary people who had been with Jesus to a professional class? When did church stop being an all-play? In chapter 6, we took a hard look at the role of leadership in the church and discovered that our basic pastoral job description didn't come from Jesus' method of feeding and growing sheep, but from a Roman emperor's desire to feed his own ego and grow his own kingdom. If we are going to rebuild the temple, not out of bricks and mortar, but out of living stones, then we must rebuild our paradigm of Christian leadership. The basic principle regarding our people is this, 
The church is a community of mutual participation and shared responsibility. Church is an all play. But how do we do this? How do we change from being a culture obsessed with big and talented celebrity leaders to a culture of mutual participation? Again, the answer lies in our starting point. The way to reintegrate the church regarding our people is to shift the starting point of our churches from the fourth place back to the neighborhood. Note to the audio listener, the same four-quadrant chart, but in the upper left, our thing, our place, instead of there just being a church, now there is a symbol of a pastor with a uh, Bible preaching. And there's an arrow moving to the lower right quadrant, their thing, their place, and it shows the same buildings, coffee house, built offices and houses, but with families in front. In this chapter, we are talking about people. So you'll notice some people have been added to the chart. The preacher lives in our thing, our place, the church building, the fourth place. On the opposite corner, we have a family. They live in their thing, their place, otherwise known as normal life. A separate religious class. Our leadership is what it is today because it is based in the fourth place. As we saw back in chapter 4, church shifted from a spiritual family to an event. Church changed from a who to a what. When Constantine separated the church from culture, he stole people out of normal life and made them church specialists. Not only did the leaders lose touch with how to shepherd people through real life, but the new size expectations put pastors in the middle of a no-win situation. Pastor Catch-22 Joseph Heller wrote a sadly humorous book called Catch-22. The main character, Captain John Yosarian, along with his fellow airmen in a war, were in a no-win situation. Flying combat missions was extremely dangerous, and every mission represented another chance to die. The only way to get out of flying was to be deemed crazy. However, to claim oneself as crazy was declared a sane act since it was acting in self-preservation. In other words, there was no way out. They had to keep flying and risk death. The lose-lose situation in Heller's book became a popular idiom known as Catch-22. Pastors find themselves in a type of Catch-22. The only way to pastor people is to know them deeply. This requires understanding their world. This also requires pastoring only a small number of people. Jesus chose 12, and only three were in his inner circle. However, the only way to pay the bills and survive as a pastor is to have a lot of people in the congregation. In other words, our event-based definition of church is forcing pastors to maintain a size of congregation that is impossible to actually pastor. It's a catch-22, a no-win situation. Like Yosarian, most pastors are financially forced to keep flying. Sadly, many of them are dying spiritually, flaming out, getting depressed, and failing morally. Pastors often go into the ministry wanting to help people's souls, but eventually realize they simply don't have time to know people at that level. Eventually, pastors give up on shepherding people and default to preaching good sermons, that is, if they have talent. After all, Sunday's always coming. A sidebar by Dudley Callison. Sidetracked. I was a lead pastor for a couple of years at a delightful little church. At first, I enjoyed being known as their pastor. A year later, I questioned what that even meant. I spent most of the week creating a sermon and planning the Sunday event. I had little time to be with the people. Honestly, even though my title was pastor, my real job was as a professional orator and event planner. 
and forget spending time with people who didn't yet know Jesus. I barely had time to meet with key church leaders who were also focused on upcoming weekly gatherings. After leaving that church, I began serving in a ministry focused on at-risk teens. That community didn't know me as a church leader. I think this actually helped them to trust me. In fact, looking back, I can say that I really began to pastor others after I left the official role. Helping people walk towards Jesus is at the heart of the pastoral life, and no title or job description should keep us from that central task. One of our communitas churches, Sampa Church, began in São Paulo, Brazil, when a lovely Christian couple relocated from Amsterdam. Neither person was a seminary-trained, ordained pastor. The husband worked for Rolls-Royce. They met some other believers who also wanted to gather and enjoy an English-speaking church. As they met, they listened to CDs or podcasts. The work of the pastor was not to teach, but to shepherd people towards applying what they had heard. The great irony is that once this couple was free from the traditional pastor job description, they were finally able to pastor people. The situation is just as bad for the congregation. People come to a church wanting a spiritual guide and eventually realize the pastor doesn't have time for them. He or she only has time to counsel a few people in crisis. The only way to get any attention is to be in crisis or be a super volunteer, spending all of one's time at the church building. Eventually, people give up on the pastor ever being able to truly shepherd their soul or even care about their day-to-day life. They settle for being entertained by sermons, that is, until they aren't entertained anymore. That's when it's off to a greener pastures to find someone else who will feed them better. It's a catch-22. It isn't working. In our current model, pastors can't shepherd souls. People don't have a guide to help them through life. Pastors are stuck as event planners, and the rest of us are forced to consume sermon after sermon. While Heller's book is a page-turner and absolutely hilarious, the catch-22 our pastors are stuck in is a tragedy. We are to be a living picture of the reconciliation of all things, integration with God, with each other, and with the world itself. We need to know how to work jobs faithfully, how to love people who are hard to love, how to pray for our neighbors. We need our leaders to model these things. Pastoral ministry needs to be more about spiritual formation than public oration. The function of the church is to learn how to live a redeemed life in the midst of culture. We cannot learn this from someone whose whole world represents separation. We cannot learn how to seek the peace of our city from someone consumed by maintaining the fourth place. This is why we need to completely redefine the word pastor. Pastor redefined. The pastoral job description became what it is because of the trajectory set by its starting point. The key to redefining this vital role is to uproot our old foundation and rebuild on Christ's foundation. Constantine's foundational paradigm is this. Church is primarily an event in a building. If church is an event, then the leader of the church is primarily an event planner. But we have a better foundation. Church is a spiritual family. Church is a who, not a what. And if church is a family, then the leaders of the family are not event planners, but fathers and mothers. Paul said it like this. Even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. 
1 Corinthians 4, 15-16. Peter tells elders to be examples to the flock, 1 Peter 5, 3. How then do we change from being professional orators and event planners to becoming living examples? How do we transition off the stage to become fathers and mothers? A new definition. If we want to see leadership in the church that enables pastors to actually shepherd souls within culture, three key movements are needed in our basic understanding of the word pastor. Event-based to family-based, professional to amateur, and isolated to networked. Number one, event-based to family-based. Go to any pastor conference and the dreaded question, how's your church doing, can only mean one thing. How many people are showing up on Sunday? Success for the modern pastor is tied directly to numbers because event planners measure success by event metrics, attendance, and event satisfaction. When we change from being event planners to being shepherds, the metrics change. Mothers and fathers see their families very differently than event planners see their events. Mothers and fathers know they can best impact the world by investing deeply in a few children. They are not looking for big numbers, but deep relationships. In chapter 9, we talked about the impact the Ifitsi Missional Order is making in Santa Barbara, California. The homeless and the affluent come together to learn from one another. The leaders sit on civil councils where they are able to help their city seek justice for women stuck in the sex trade. However, at their core are 12 people. They are a small spiritual family. They do not define themselves by the gathering, but by an agreed-upon way of life and community. Families come in all shapes and sizes. They can be a small nuclear family of three or an enormous extended family of 50. Mothers and fathers are not trying to make a big crowd happy, but walk with their kids through all of life's many ups and downs. If we are going to redefine the pastor's role, we need to shift from event-based leadership to family-based leadership. Number two, professional to amateur. The second key change to the definition of the word pastor is to decrease in specialization. In order to do this, we must shift the focus to the family meal rather than the family wedding. An Iranian immigrant is equipped to start a new church gathering because a family meal requires no specialization in its leadership. The elements of the event are something an amateur could do. Dinner, discussion around scripture, singing, where anyone could play along, community prayer time and fellowship. Jesus did not leave us a wedding to remember him by. He left us a family meal. On the night he was betrayed, he ate bread and drank wine together. Jesus talked about his body and blood. There was conversation, even arguing about who was the greatest. Normal life was happening. That's the beauty of a meal. Jesus said to do this family meal over and over again in order to remember him until he returns. It was simple, doable, reproducible, culturally transferable. Every culture has families. Every culture eats. In this way, the church could reproduce itself into every culture of the world. Temple structures ask people to conform. Jesus' structure allowed the kingdom to move freely amongst every culture and subculture of the world without destroying the beauty of the world's diversity. There is no right way to do a family meal. We have seen examples of the community meal from Jesus in Judea, Paul in Corinth, Justin Martyr in Rome, and Tertullian in North Africa. All the gatherings were different. Church should be as full of variety as the various cultures it represents. There is also continuity. In each case, the gospel of Jesus is central, and church is an all-play. Everyone takes part in the meal, the word, the prayers, the giving, 
There's clear leadership roles, an overseer, deacons, a reader, but they move in and among the community, not over and above it. This is the integration of people. This is church, a community of equals. Upper Room Glasgow looks very similar to these ancient gatherings. What was done 2,000 years ago in Hebrew, Aramaic, or Greek is working for Iranian immigrants speaking Farsi in Scotland. It still works. No professionals are required. If we are going to integrate our people, we must deprofessionalize the role of the pastor. Is this the only gathering size that works for a church? No, but it is the foundation. A community can be enormous and can include large gatherings of thousands, but at its core will be a network of spiritual families. A church can do without large worship services, but they cannot do without a place to experience real life in community. 3. Isolated to Networked I recently had a conversation with Dave Runyon, co-author of the book The Art of Neighboring. His organization gathers pastors regionally to help them connect and work together to better their communities. He told me that as he meets with pastor after pastor, he hears the same story over and over again. Senior pastors have no friends. They are isolated. Power dynamics keep them from honest friendships in their own congregations, and they don't have time or space in their lives for anyone else. Besides, their day off, even if they had one, is opposite the rest of the world. This is a problem. Isolation is contributing to pastoral depression and moral failure. It is keeping pastors from cooperating with other pastors. Not only that, but isolation is causing the church to miss out on many of the gifts that the New Testament offers us, especially those known as APEPT or APEST, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, shepherds, and teachers. For the most part, we can only afford to pay for one, the pastor or teacher role. Of course, larger churches can hire large staffs, but how many of these churches are really hiring apostles and prophets? And evangelists. For the most part, they are hiring communications directors, video producers, human resources and facilities managers, and many more internal facing roles. For most churches, all hiring points to the building, and the senior pastor is simply the CEO over all facility and event operations. The reality is that we are utilizing few of the APEPT gifts because all of our resources are tied up running events and buildings, rather than empowering everyone as participants in a great decentralized kingdom movement. We are simply making our big-name pastors even bigger. The satellite campus movement is not helping the situation. While making the star pastor more visible to the masses, the multiplication of video venues simply extends the reach of one super-talented leader even further. If we are going to have any sense of unity or cooperation in the church, the power dynamic simply must change. An integrated church model accomplishes this. When pastors are fathers and mothers rather than event planners, they are looking for deep relationships rather than big numbers. In this way, the other gifts from APEPT are released. If you are multiplying smaller communities, you need people to coordinate the network as a whole. You need apostolic leaders to break new ground and provide vision. You need prophetic leaders to listen to God, pray, and challenge the individual communities toward a bigger vision. You need teachers to train new leaders and equip the pastors for their ministry. Consider the example of Young Life. A Young Life area director will tell their leaders and staff, if you want to work closely with kids, be a volunteer. If you want to get paid, be an area director. 
but anticipate a lot of paperwork and less hands-on ministry with kids. Area directors are like apostles. They don't use this title, but that is their function. They are the glue, the relational leaders who keep all of the local volunteers and staff coordinated and moving forward. If we are going to allow pastors to finally pastor people, we are going to need a strong APEPT network around them. The definition of the word pastor needs to change from event-based to family-based, professional to amateur, and isolated to network. In order to do this, one of the biggest hurdles that must be overcome is money. There is a good reason we only focus on one gift in the Western church. We can't afford to pay for the rest. In order to move toward an integrated church, we must address our deeply rooted and broken financial model. Fee for service. The primary financial model used in the Western church is the fee for service model. I was talking to a senior pastor friend a few days ago who told me about several recent conversations with members of his congregation. He has been attempting to raise up a preaching team in order to share the preaching load and train young preachers. His efforts, however, have not all been appreciated by his congregation. Several members have asked him, if you're not preaching every week, then what are we paying you for? The fee-for-service financial model says, if you preach well and grow the church, then we will keep paying your salary through our tithes. Underlying this idea is an outsourcing model of ministry. The main ministry tasks, preaching, weddings, and funerals, are all outsourced to the paid professionals. The more important the ministry tasks, the more money we pay. Senior pastors make a living wage, associates a little less, administrators less still. Human resource literature will tell you that the larger church pastors should make more than small church pastors. It is simple economics, supply and demand. Supply a good product that demands more attendance and tithe contributions, and you deserve more money. Regardless of polity, whether congregational, Presbyterian, or otherwise, most Western churches use a fee-for-service financial model. We pay professional ministry people for religious services rendered. Should people who preach and teach God's word be paid? Yes. But how much? Paul writes to Timothy, The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. 1 Timothy 5.17 How much were they really getting paid? These were small communities. These were people with other sources of income who were devoting part of their life to overseeing a church. These were not professional orators on stages performing for thousands. Preaching did not mean delivering a polished speech. It meant reading scripture out loud and explaining it. It meant telling stories about Jesus and leading a community discussion. They received some compensation to honor their time and effort, but this was a stipend, not a salary. The goal of these elders was to give ministry away, not to get paid to do it all themselves. This is why Paul teaches us, So Christ himself gave the apostles and prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up, Ephesians 4, 11 and 12. We make disciples by releasing real responsibility to others, not by outsourcing it to the professionals. Mutual participation in the ministry is the key to everyone's growth. If you want to understand why we are raising up a culture of spiritual infants and consumers, we need to understand that it is directly related to our broken financial model. Empowered Participant Leadership An integrated church flips the fee-for-service model on its head. 
Rather than outsourcing ministry to a few professionals, an integrated church empowers as many people as possible to contribute to the community and mission, regardless of pay. Here is an example. A newly married couple named Josh and Lucia are leading the church in Spain. Josh is a singer-songwriter, and Lucia is a gifted painter. They live in an extremely diverse and artistic district of Madrid called Malasaña. Like all Communitas church planners, Josh and Lucia began with who, not what. They studied their culture, built relationships, and prayed, and God opened up an opportunity to now help lead a beautiful community of people who call themselves decoupage. One way they have embedded themselves into the fabric of Malasaña is by opening a co-working business designed specifically for artists. They lease space to both Christian and non-Christian artists for a fraction of what normal artistic spaces would cost. Not only do they run a business, but they use their art to bless the neighborhood. Every year they research a need in the community and create a giant mural, Lucia's specialty. They write a question on an urban wall and allow the neighborhood to write their responses. This annual tradition has gained decoupage an enormous amount of respect in the community. Decoupage is much more than a mere worship service. They meet in homes and apartments to share meals, song, and prayer. And they also share life and mission outside their gatherings. They do not impose their own goals on the neighborhood, but listen for real needs and then actively work together to meet those needs. Lucia teaches art lessons for local kids, including the very poor. One of the moms so appreciated Lucia's investment in her child that she opened up to her about her own need for work as well as her questions about God. She and Lucia began studying the Bible together. The community helped this woman write a resume and get a job. When it came time for her daughter's birthday, this mom could not afford a party, so the entire decoupage community threw her a celebration she would never forget. This family has now come to Christ and joined the community. Decoupage is a living picture of the reconciliation of all three spheres of relationships. They are growing closer to God. They are living in loving community. They are using their artistic gifts to make the world more beautiful and interesting. They are seeking the peace of their city. Josh and Lucia only receive a small amount of their income from the church, giving 400 euros a month to be exact. The majority of the giving goes right back into the needs of the neighborhood. Josh and Lucia are part of a new church financial model. In this system, the goal is not to support a church facility and the people who run the programs of that facility. That would be to remove disciple makers from their natural context. Instead, the goal is to keep people within culture where they're able to reach and develop new disciples of Jesus. When you start from the building, you need someone to run the building. You need someone to run the programs of the building. You need high specialization. Professional Christians are expensive. Buildings, utilities, and maintenance are expensive. Therefore, you need a large body of tithing individuals to keep the machine running. When you start from culture, everything changes. No building, no utilities, no professionals. Therefore, the financial model can work differently. Communitas and other church planning networks support a wide array of financial arrangements. Some church planners and pastors are supported full-time by the generosity of their communities. Some are supported through donor development, fundraising. Many aren't. Many are bankers or artists or managers who also pastor a small spiritual family. They receive their paycheck from their employer, not from a church planting network. Some call this arrangement bivocational, but that term is often used to speak of pastors who have not yet succeeded enough in ministry size and tithe income to receive full-time support. 
This view of bivocational is not true of how Communitas views ministry and money. Success is not equated with full-time support. In fact, it is often just the opposite. If you talk to Josh and Lucia, they would tell you that their financial arrangement is beneficial for a number of reasons. Number one, they like how running a business and pastoring a smaller community keeps them free from the mixed motives that come from the fee-for-service model. Two, they know that in Spain, answering the question, what do you do with I'm a pastor, will kill the conversation before it even starts. Lucia is glad she can honestly say, I'm an artist. I run a business. Three, they love the fact that by not being on a paid staff, it invites other people in the community to naturally step up and take ownership of the ministry. Four, they appreciate and lean on the support they receive from the Communitas Network. Josh and Lucia love being part of a community that isn't constantly self-promoting and overusing its volunteers. According to Josh, who has used his musical talents to serve in other churches in the past, this is the first church I truly believe in. It is hard and frustrating work at times, but I can finally sleep well at night. Josh and Lucia are walking alongside others in spiritual family, not above them on a platform. Everyone takes part. Everyone has gifts, passions, and a voice. Some of their fellow artists are teachers. Some have gifts of mercy and compassion. Others are gifted in hospitality. Lucia is more of an evangelist. Josh is more pastoral. Having a team allows them to focus where they are more gifted. In addition, beyond their own team and community, they are supported by a much larger network. Communitas leaders don't go around trumpeting, I'm an apostle or I am a prophet, as if these were badges of honor. However, in every way, their network functions both apostolically and prophetically. Josh and Lucia aren't alone. They have people within Communitas leadership to help them continue to dream about God's heart for Malasanya. They have people listening to God with them for the sake of their city. On the other side of town lives a Communitas couple that takes time to care for their souls. They meet together regularly for prayer and mentoring. They attend global and local conferences where they form lasting relationships with others around the world in positions similar to theirs. They participate in local learning communities which have become a vital source of encouragement and training. Many of these apostolic and prophetic leaders receive full-time or part-time pay from Communitas. They are the relational and operational glue behind the scenes. They are listening to God. They are strategizing new ground to break. They are training and releasing new leaders. If you were concerned at the idea of deprofessionalizing the pastoral role, I want to assure you that following this course does not lead to a lack of theologically trained people within the network. It simply means that Josh and Lucia don't need all of that training for themselves. The network of gifts removes the pressure. It allows pastors to be normal humans that God can use to love and disciple a few people. Whereas many pastors feel alone at the top, Josh and Lucia feel like they are part of a network, a global community of people of various gifts all sharing the same mission. This is integration of people. No mountains and no valleys. No clergy elevated above the laity. Equal participation. No celebrity personas needed. The end of the Christian celebrity. Where are the heroes in this network? Where are the big names? Are they the people at the top with the big titles? No. Nobody even knows who they are. They office at coffee shops and co-working spaces. They work tirelessly for the sake of the mission, but their faces don't show up on any billboards. Pastors are normal humans who love a few people really well. They are multiplying big lives, not big crowds. They are extraordinary in the little things, the ordinary. When a church grows toward a size where a leader could become a celebrity, 
that is the time that they are most likely to plant another church. In an integrated church, the hero is not the big voice on the stage. Often there is no stage or microphone. The hero is the person working their job faithfully and sharing life with a few people. The hero is the person sharing a meal with a neighbor. The hero is spending yet another hour on their knees in prayer. The hero is doing what they should be doing, living like Christ. Jesus said, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Matthew twenty twenty eight. Our modern phenomena of big stages and satellite campuses makes sense in the Western world. If we have something great, we want everybody to experience it. We want to spread it. If we have a successful product, the culture narrative tells us to maximize it at all costs. When we do this, don't we just become another Constantine? He created a standardized model of church and then spread it throughout the world. I'm sure he thought that his beautiful basilica was just what the people living in Bethlehem needed. He probably wasn't thinking, you know what? Judeans are different than Romans. We should take that slow and long path of raising up local Judean leaders and working within their existing architecture. No, he didn't have time for that. He had something that was working, so he built Rome right on top of the manger. Isn't that us today? Isn't that the satellite movement? We don't have time for slow growth either. We want to spread our successful church culture while the iron is hot. We all want to be heroes, but that just isn't the path of Jesus. Until we leave the fourth place, we will be stuck as anxious self-promoters and event planners. Our paycheck will be connected to drawing crowds. We will be jealous of the, quote, successful pastors with the big churches. If it is any encouragement to you, there are celebrity leaders making the hard choice to forgo the adulation of the crowds for a simpler way of church. Francis Chan tells the story of preaching to crowds of thousands, all the while feeling guilty for wasting God's precious resources. He had a church of 5,000 people and realized each of them was empowered to do kingdom work. Many of them were running successful companies, but because they were partaking in his definition of megachurch, they were just sitting in a large room and listening to the guy on stage. It was costing millions of dollars, taking enormous amounts of time, and the fruit was a room full of onlookers, not participants. Chan is now running a house church network called We Are Church. It is organized around empowering many leaders to shepherd small communities of active participants and self-feeders. I applaud Chan. This is a risky and humbling move not many leaders are willing to take. Jesus' path leads to the cross, not the stage. It is time to decrease the size, remove the complexity, and allow a network of and gifted people to serve our cities together. It is time to get off the platform and into the neighborhood. It is time to integrate our people and make church an all-play. Hope for the established church. I understand that this model of church can feel pretty different from what many of us are used to. I also understand that participating in fundamentally different wineskin of church isn't an option for all of us. Our denomination, our polity, our financial model, our culture of senior pastors on the stage are too deeply ingrained to make that type of change right now. If you are coming from an existing building-based church, there are many ways that you can incrementally move toward the integration of people without selling your building. No matter where you are starting right now, you can take tangible steps towards the leveling of your leadership and the empowering of your people. Let me offer you a challenge. The temptation in the fourth place is always to simply try to grow the event even bigger. Maybe that's you right now. You're getting pressure to preach better, hire a better worship leader, or use better technology. 
But as most of you know by now, we will never quite get there. We will always need just a few more tithing units, a couple more staff, and some better gear. In the end, we are simply producing bigger leaders and smaller consumer Christians. If you are ready to get off the fourth place hamster wheel, here are three practical directions you can move instead. Note to the audio listener, we have a four quadrant chart. And here there is the Our Thing, Our Place, upper left. There's a church, and there's arrows pointing down, A, to Our Thing, Their Place, B, across to Our Place, Their Thing, and C, diagonally to the bottom right, Their Place, Their Thing. A, Our Thing, Their Place. In order to blur the lines between clergy and lady, there is no more proven way than a great small groups program. If your church can release more pastoral care and responsibility to a group of leaders in homes, you've gone a long way towards integrating people. Not only do people in groups get the pastoral care they long for, but the celebrity persona is no longer the primary glue that connects people to your church. The glue becomes relationships, spiritual family. B. Their thing, our place. Part of the church moving away from the holy celebrity persona is simply helping your leaders learn how to exist like normal humans again. If you can make your church building into a legitimate first, second, or third place for your neighborhood, this makes a big difference. Even though your church staff still offices in the building, they are regularly rubbing shoulders with the patrons of the coffee shop or the tech startup team officing out of your co-working space. All of a sudden, they are interacting with the normal flow of life and stories of your neighbors instead of the constant barrage of churchgoers. This reconnection to reality shifts their whole way of thinking, preaching, and practicing ministry in the community. In addition, when these valued tenants and business people experience good relationships with your staff and other Christians, it builds a natural bridge to your faith community. People who are normally hesitant to attend church might actually take the risk of joining a small group or walking through your doors on a Sunday morning. C. Their thing, their place. Ultimately, the goal is to get people to live like Christ in their world. One of the reasons we are not making disciples is that people think Christianity is about sitting in a row and observing professional Christians. Before people will take real risks for Christ in their world, you need to help people move from the posture of observer to participant. How can you do this? Does your church do service projects in the community? Use these not just as ends in themselves, but as exposure events that get people to care about the needs of their own neighborhood. Ask people the question, what if you did this type of work for the people in your own life? Provide easy ways for people to take steps in their own world, their own neighborhoods, and coworkers. What if you created an environment for some basic missional training? dialogue, and a place to dream and pray together for where to start. Help empower people to take the initiative with some friends in their own world. Don't plan everything for them from the church center. Let people take the lead, make mistakes, and learn on their own. Sit in circles instead of rows whenever possible. Come alongside them as a coach and friend. Remember, this type of cultural shift will not happen through sermons alone. You will need to create environments, whether in small groups or at the building, to allow people a place to cultivate what Alan Roxborough calls their missional imagination. Changing fundamental posture from observer to participant is challenging. Don't expect to see the entire church change right away. Be thankful for a few early adopters that can start to build momentum for others through their stories. If you invest the time and prayer and your leadership team owns the change for their own lives, you will see God's incarnational heart grow in your people. Changing the culture of the fourth place. 
In addition to the three directions we just talked about, there are positive ways for churches to practice the integration of people, even within the fourth place. Many churches are utilizing a preaching team instead of one primary voice. This creates less dependence on one person and releases more people into their gifts. Another way to slowly shift your culture is to allow more time for personal stories on your stage. Simply allowing non-trained people a chance to share about their lives and spiritual journeys in Christ helps to demythologize the stage. Video testimonies are fine, but the whole point of video editing as a medium is to clean up and polish people. The medium itself removes us a step from reality. In order to practice a better Christology where human and divine exist together, we need to allow unpolished people to be themselves. Other ways to integrate people involve changes to the service itself. Some churches are experimenting with people sitting at round tables instead of rows. They are allowing for discussion in their services instead of the usual monologue. Others are celebrating a less formal Eucharist. People leave their seats and pray with others. All of these changes are small shifts away from the liturgy of the wedding toward the liturgy of the family meal. Leaders become more human and attendees become participants. In all of these small changes, the medium begins to reflect a better message of equality in our people. On to the integration of our practices. We have now integrated two of our three forms. We've discussed the integration of place, and we've seen what integration of people looks like, but we're not done yet. If we integrate place and people, but keep our idea that growth happens primarily from singing and sermons, we will likely fail. It's time to redefine worship. It's time to integrate our practices.